You have no rival. And that, that's really what we're going to be focusing on this morning as we uh, dive deeper into our Joshua series is the rivals. The rivals and obstacles that keep us from being prepared for the promise of God. We, we're just saying you have no rival. And so this morning, our loving Father is going to bring His Word to us to reveal maybe things that we are tempted to allow to rival His authority over our life, rival the power that He wants to manifest through our life and at this church, rival the promises He wants to reveal in our life. And so if you have your Bible with you, we are in our Joshua series, but next couple of weeks we're going to be dealing with a, a phrase out of Joshua in verse 10 where Joshua commanded the people of God as they ready to go into the promise of God, prepare your provisions. And so we're going to be focusing on that. As Joshua commanded them to prepare the provisions, a question that came to my mind is, what preparations do we as God's people under the new covenant of Jesus Christ need to be making to be in the promise that God wants for our lives and has spoken over our lives? So even though we're in a Joshua series, we're going to use that to launch into different uh, texts and passages for the next several weeks. So if you have your Bible with you or your smartphone or tablet or whatever you're using in the Word of God, if you can make your way to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Luke is before John. So Joshua in, in chapter 1 said, prepare your provisions. That word provisions in Joshua had nothing to do with military action. It had nothing to do with military preparation. It was for the people of God to prepare the supplies, the things they would need to enter into the promise that God had been calling them to, to enter into this covenant with Him. And so we have preparations in our own life to, to follow where God is leading us, to where God wants us to be, things that we need to prepare. And even though the Israelites are going to be facing battles and go to war and we have battles of our own in our, in, in our own life, there are preparations that we need to make to be ready for what God is going to be taking us to do. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on the prep, personal preparation of removing obstacles, Removing those obstacles that are keeping us from where God wants us to be. And we'll be in Luke chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 3 through 6. And we'll kind of get into the context of this passage and what it means for us today. And the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 3 of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. And he, and he is speaking of a man by the name of John the Baptist. We'll talk about him in a second. Went into all the region around the Jordan. That's the Jordan River proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This passage is dealing with a man by the name of John, also known as John the Baptist. Uh, he's never titled that in Scripture. He's called a Baptist because he's baptizing. He was immersing people in water for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance. It was not a baptism of salvation. If you want to know more about that, you can read into the book of Acts where that is encountered. But John is on the banks of the Jordan River. This is the exact same river that we've encountered in the book of Joshua. 
Now, John is preaching about 12 to 1300 years after Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land after they crossed the Jordan River. And John now stands on the shores of this river, giving a similar proclamation, a similar command for the people of God to prepare. As Joshua said, prepare your provisions. So John calls out, prepare the way of the Lord. John is, is giving us this, this image or this picture of taking us back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, particularly in Isaiah chapter 40, we have this passage of scripture that is quoted. And John is fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40 where the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel telling them that even though they're in the midst of captivity and be Babylonian captivity at that time, that God was bringing hope, that there was going to be a, a messenger of hope, a king of authority that is going to be coming to relieve them of their captivity and their bondage. And 800 years after prophet Isaiah proclaimed this, here is John proclaiming it once again. And this image allows us to understand what John is trying to, to speak to the people of Israel in removing these obstacles. In Isaiah and the Gospel of Luke with John the Baptist, the language is a language of a king coming to look over his dominion. In this particular day and age, and in Isaiah's day and age, when a king would take over a territory, he would eventually go and do like a kingly tour. But in order for do, to do that kingly tour, he would send couriers and scouts and some of his army ahead of him to go and scout out the land. So they would go and look to see if there were places that needed to be checked, if roads needed to be maintained, if there was a landscape that needed to be avoided or in some cases completely removed. They would make sure there were not spots on the king's tour where enemies could attack the king and bring damage to the kingdom. And they would send messages to the cities and the people of the region that the king is coming. And so you better be ready. You better be prepared. You better be ready to welcome him as he comes in and brings his great honor upon you. It's very similar to when a president visits an area today, except there would not be anybody out uh, picketing the president because in a king's day, if you picketed the king, you're dead. It's the way it worked. But the words here for the gospel, or for Luke and... Or, for Isaiah and John is this image that there is a king coming with full of power, full power, full authority into the territory that he owns. And obviously they're speaking of King Jesus, that Jesus is coming to his earth. He's coming to his people and that the people of God, those who are created in the image of God, need to be preparing something for the arrival of the king. So our question this morning as we deal with obstacles that may be keeping us from the preparation that, of the king in our life and God's authority over our life and his power and dominion over our life is what is keeping us from that? What are the obstacles we're allowing to keep us from where God is wanting us to be and ultimately keep God from being God over our life? In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. The word wilderness is to speak of a dry, desolate, neglected, and isolated area. The wilderness is an image of who we are without Jesus Christ. We are dry spiritually. We are desolated in our sin. We are neglecting our God-given purpose. and We are isolated from the God who loves us. The image of the wilderness here, even though John was in a literal wilderness or isolated area, 
It's this image of our soul when we live outside of the promise of God. Joshua and John come to the people of God and they issue a command. Joshua didn't say prepare your provisions and John didn't say prepare the way of the Lord as a word of advice. This was not something that said, well, if you want to do it, do it. But if you don't, that's fine. This was something that was expected for the people of God to begin taking action. So the first step in preparing for the Lord in our life is to identify the obstacles that are hindering God from doing what He wants to do in our life. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, verse three or verse 4, you are to prepare the way for the Lord. You are to make His paths straight. To make the path straight is to cry to remove the obstacles that are keeping us from the promise of God. Within this text, we see the reason which we'll come to before we wrap up this morning and why we need to do this in verse 6, where it says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. And here's the greatest danger that this text is presenting in our preparation. The greatest danger that Christians pose to believers younger in the faith or to an unbelieving world is for Christians in the church to build up obstacles that keep others from knowing Christ. This is what the Bible refers to as stumbling blocks or hindrances. And so let's walk through them. It says that every valley, verse 5, every valley shall be filled. The valley is to speak of things in our life that bring us down, that bring us to a lowly state. The ultimate valley is our valley of sin, which Psalm 23 says the valley of the shadow of death. Death is only alive because of sin. And so the ultimate obstacle we all have is sin. But what sin does is it produces other obstacles in our life as we try to deal with our own sin. We try to take care of it. We try to put a bandage on the wound. And one of the valleys we all wrestle with, all because of sin, is an obstacle of value or self-image. The Bible says that we are all sinners. Yet the beautiful image of the Bible is that is not how God defines us. God knows that you and I are sinners. He knows that you and I are sinful. But the Bible defines us as people who are created in the image and likeness of God, worthy to be saved from our sin. And so God sees us as someone who is worthy to be called his child, not as a sinner. He wants to adopt us, change us from sinner to saint. But when we allow sin to define our life, we begin wrestling with our own value, and the enemy is well aware of this. He will allow us to create a value system that is ungodly and unhealthy that builds up an obstacle for God to do what he wants to do. One of those value systems that we begin to build up is desires in our heart to find value in things of this world rather than the Word of God. We all do this. It's because of our sin. We find or give ourselves value because of the possessions we have. We give ourselves value because of the money we have or the money in our bank or the retirement package we have. We give ourselves value because of the success we've had in this world or the acceptance by others. You know, we've got two kids, both of them are in here this morning, and I can remember when they were little bitty kids and we were able just to sit them on the floor and they could sit up without falling over because their head didn't weigh so much. That there were, you probably had this with your own kid, there was this box. And ours, I remember, was a red box with this yellow top. It was a lid, and the lid had shapes on top of that box. 
And so you took the shapes out of the box, you put the lid back on, and then you put it in front of your child to torment them as they try to shove circles into triangles and crosses into squares, and it didn't seem to work. And I remember watching the first couple times our kids did this. They were pushing as hard as they possibly could to get that shape through the hole because they understood the purpose. The little blocks were going to the box, but they couldn't do it until they figured out that only certain things could go through certain holes. Now, you've probably heard this saying before, that we all have this Jesus-shaped hole in our heart, and even though that may be a little corny to sound or to hear it, the reality of it is true. It's because of sin, we have this hole in our heart, and all of our desires is to fill that hole with something we think will bring us satisfaction or fulfillment. That's what sin does. That's what the valley is. And so we begin to place value on things of this world, be it possessions or money or relationships or acceptance or promotions at work to fill that hole. And one thing that we all realize but continue to not recognize is none of those things will bring us the fulfillment that God's promise will. If it would, then we wouldn't continue with the rat race. We wouldn't buy a cell phone this year and then next year wish that our our contract, our plan was up so we could get the new phone. We wouldn't go look at Black Friday deals like, oh, I could use a new TV. Mine's only 60 inches and that one's 65. We wouldn't look at new cars and look at things to update and, and to make better if those things could give us fulfillment. But that's the problem is we all have this valley and we're all seeking for something to fill that valley. But when we seek it in the things of this world, we're always going to be disappointed. I've seen this play out in my own life as a child. I grew up wanting friends. And so I pray, God, give me friends. And it wasn't just to have one friend. I wanted to have a multitude of friends. I wanted to be the popular kid at school for some reason. And so I pray, God, give me a lot of friends. Because if I have a lot of friends, then I'm accepted and I place value on that. When I started in friends, then that kind of wore off. And, well, Lord, I want to be good at sports. I want to be good at athletics. So make me good, make me the star, make me one of the best players on the team. And, and so I prayed about that and I pursued after that. That was my, my heart's desire and everything my mind was focused on. Then eventually it, I came to SBU and I began placing a value on relationships. It wasn't enough to have friends. It wasn't enough to be athletic. I got to find the girl of my dreams because everybody at SBU gets married by spring. So I got to do that too. And so that was my value. That's what I sought after. And I could look at girls and eliminate girls and, and see how one girl eliminated me for a while until I wore her down through prayer and fasting. <laughs> Amen, it works. And now it's, it's that constant thing of valuing possessions, valuing that new thing. And, and I wish I could say we get over that. But until we understand about the obstacle of what we're actually trying to do, we won't. There was a time I thought, you know what, if I, if I just had an iPad, if I just had the most expensive computer, man, I could really be a good pastor. That'd make me a better preacher. Well, that's not true. See, the things of this world, possessions, friendships, acceptance, will never give you the value that God has already given you. We've got to come to that understanding. 
as long as I keep chasing after this world, I'm always going to be unsatisfied. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word money there in Matthew 6.24, the Greek is mammon, which, which means possessions, material possessions. And Jesus is saying, look, you cannot serve materials of this world and the living word. Because you will always be battling who you're going to worship, who you're going to pursue after, who you're going to find fulfillment in. And so John comes to the people of God who are under the Roman Empire and he says, every valley shall be filled. That's what God wants to do in our life. Are there places or things in our life that we're giving a higher value than the things of God? Is there something in your life that consumes your thoughts and your hearts and your mind over your thoughts of God? There are things you're serving and worshiping more than you're serving and worshiping God because this is the battle. And this is the valley. The second obstacle we see comes out of verse 5. It says, Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The mountains and hills speak of the things that we lift up. And another obstacle, and this is the ironic thing, another obstacle that we all face is pride. And it's weird because we, we wrestle with value and finding value and feeling a sense of self-worth. But in the same moment, because of sin, we also take pride in the things that we do have or who we think we are. It stems from our value system. We value things of worldly treasures. And so we begin to develop a sense of pride on the things that we feel we've accomplished because we look at the things we have and feel they give us some prideful uh, value before other people of this world. I have a friend who told me a story of a time that he was walking on the streets of a very large city. He was there as, I guess, a tourist. He was there at a conference, but he was just walking the streets. He had some time between uh, sessions and and as he walked down the streets, he noticed that in this particular city, there was a large homeless population. And as he began looking around, seeing different people asking for help and aid or food or money and, and all that sort of things, at this moment, a car pulled over and parked on the side of the street. And in that car, teenagers hopped out. And it was a very nice car. They hopped out with their phones in hand. They were dressed to impress the world, and they began walking in front of him. And so he just kind of took in what they were doing as he walked along. And as they journeyed down the road a little bit, they stopped in front of another homeless individual, and they began to poke fun at him. They began to take pictures of him, and they began to tell this homeless man, why don't you do something with your life? Why don't you get up and go get a job? You're completely worthless. And it was in that moment that my friend had this, this revelation. Here were these teenagers who most likely did not buy the vehicle that they just got out of. Here were these teenagers who did most likely not buy the phones that they were holding and taking pictures with. They most likely did not pay for the data plan that they had in using the phone. Matter of fact, if they were like most teenagers, they most likely didn't even buy the clothes they were wearing, but it was gifted to them or someone gave them money to go buy it themselves. They most likely were not spending their own money for whatever activity they didn't ready to go do. 
And yet here were these teenagers having a sense of pride in the things that they felt they possessed, that they were better than another individual who was made in the image and likeness of God. And the reality hit my friend that, you know what? They actually own less than that homeless man. Yet because they found value in the things they possessed, they felt they were better than somebody else that God had created. And this is the danger of pride is that we can look at the things we possess, the things that we have in this life, and we can come to this conclusion that we are better because of who we are or what we have. God must love us more. Well, God must, you know, we must be living our life just the way God wants it so He can continue to give us health and wealth. But that's not how God looks that's not how God works. As a believer, as those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, here's the thing. I am given a title by God to be his child and an heir to his kingdom, not by anything I have done or anything I could do to deserve it. I am given the most prestigious title for all eternity simply because God is a God of grace and mercy. And when we begin to realize that all of our prideful righteousness is a polluted garment before a holy God, we'll begin to break down the obstacle of pride in our own achievements. An obstacle of pride that begins to develop while we live as children of God, is that we begin to think we actually have done something to earn it or something to deserve it. But before God took Israel into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 9, He told the Israelites, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going into possess the land. We are who we are. And the value we have has nothing to do with what we have done but only because it is a, there is a God who has made us and what that God has done for us. And a pushback with this is we all sit here and our prideful hearts begin to boil. Because we say, okay, look here, Pastor. You don't know how hard I've worked to get where I am today. You don't know all the training I've gone through. You don't know all the education I've done. You don't know all the time I've put in to earn the check that comes into my bank account every week. Yet when I put all of these things and we put all these things under the sovereignty of God, we begin to gain a proper perspective so our pride can be removed. For your job, who gave you the skills, the talents, the desires to do the things you do today? Did you naturally come out of the womb ready to bang a hammer? No, God began to form you and mold you. When you think about the job itself and the interview you had to go through to get that job, who opened the door for you to even have that interview? Who moved on the hearts of the individuals that were going to make the decision so you could have the job? If showing up at an interview is simply to answer a few questions and then declare at the end that the job is yours, it'd be a lot less stressful. 
But something moved on the hearts of the people giving the interview. And we know by the word of God that that something was God working all things out for our good. And even if you're here and you're self-employed or you own your own business, the paycheck that you receive from your job, from your employment, who's in charge of making sure that the place you work, your self-employment, your business, actually receives funds so you can have financial support in your life? If it was simply opening up the doors and millions of people would come in and you're automatically rich, then everyone would begin their own business, wouldn't they? No, it has to be God bringing people, supplying your needs, providing for you. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything that we have, our families, our marriages, our kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, cars, houses, jobs, clothes, is all because of the mercy of God. Everything we own is because we are loved by a God who owns all things. And so when it comes to the obstacle of pride, the devil wants to puff us up believing that we actually did something. And what that does is it, it makes us take the glory away from God and put it on ourselves. And so we begin to worship ourselves. One of the greatest obstacles people have for coming to faith is the prideful of their education or their finances or their health. You know, they're too smart for God. They're too healthy. They don't need God to intercede in their life or they have too many materials that they can provide for their own things. See, the obstacle of pride is very dangerous because the obstacle of pride creates idolatry. It creates a form of worship that is unhealthy. The next obstacle in verse 5 is the crooked shall become straight, which speaks of obstacles that keep others and us from seeing God's truth. One crooked way is the way of hypocrisy. Jesus dealt with hypocrisy throughout his ministry. Hypocrisy stems from our value system, which is built upon our prideful accomplishments. Hypocrisy comes from talking to talk, but not walking to walk. But the Bible says that all of creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What that means is that the world around us is looking and longing for authentic children of God to be revealed. They're longing for a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own own possession. And history has shown that the greatest obstacle in people coming to the faith is not the message of Jesus Christ and salvation in the gospel. The greatest obstacle in people coming to the faith are Christians who do not walk like, talk like, act like, think like, or look like Jesus Christ. Instead of bringing, they push. So we have to be aware that the world is watching us. The rough places here, finally speak of the places in our hearts that may be producing an unforgiving heart. It's that unforgiving heart that becomes rough. It becomes hard. It begins to create bitterness and anger and jealousy. It begins to look at people and say, well, I hope someone puts them in their spot. I hope they get what they deserve. The reality is our inability to forgive someone has nothing to do with what the other person has done, but it's completely about our view and understanding of God's grace. 
my inability to forgive someone in my life has nothing to do how much my pride has been hurt. It has everything to do with how much I understand the cross. If I can only forgive a little, then I view the value of the cross as very little. But if I can forgive unconditionally, then I understand the full scope of God's redeeming grace found in Jesus Christ. And this is tough. And the reason we wrestle with unforgiving hearts is because of sin, our value system, our pride, and feeling that we deserve something better. An unforgiving heart creates anger and judgment. We begin to see people not as people whom God loves, but rather as people who should get what they deserve. If the Bible instructs us that our relationship with people, whether they're saved or not, is just as important as our relationship with God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The offering a gift in this context was an act of trust and it was an act of worship. It was what the people of God felt they needed to do to remain in a right relationship with God. But here Jesus says, if you have something against your brother, if you have a rough place in your heart, a bitterness, an anger, an envy, an unforgiving heart towards somebody, you need to first reconcile that before you come into the presence of an almighty God. Jesus captured this truth in Matthew 18 when he told the parable of the unforgiving servant. The master called a servant in and asked him to pay for all the things that he had owed. It was an unsurmountable debt. It was a debt he could not pay even if he worked a thousand lifetimes. But in that moment, the servant begged the master for forgiveness. And the master, giving mercy and grace, forgave all of the servant's debts and then released him out into the world. As the servant went out, he encountered other people who owed him money. And so he went to them and he threw them in prison because they couldn't pay him the little that they had done to him compared to the, the whole that he had done to his own master. Jesus tells the parable that the master hears about the unforgiving servant's heart and summons him back, back into his presence, brings the accusations against him, and then reveals to him that because he would not be able to forgive little, even though he had been forgiven much, he was going to be imprisoned. And the image here is that an unforgiving heart imprisons us. We may feel we have the right to hold on to something, but the reality of Scripture is when we hold on to something, what it actually is doing is holding us. And it's holding us from being who God wants us to be and where God wants us to be in His promise. Why would we want to remove these obstacles? The Bible says in verse 6 that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, our personal preparations and our understanding of the obstacles in our life that are keeping us from where God wants us to be is so people can see the salvation of God, so people can see Jesus in our life. If you have a question, I don't know if people see Jesus, or I don't know if I'm living this, right, this life the way I should be, maybe it's because there's obstacles you are putting up that are keeping people from seeing Jesus in you. you may be hypocritical. You may be judgmental. You may be prideful in who you think you are. You may place a value in something greater than your relationship with God. But God's desire is that all flesh shall see. John wasn't calling for mending roads, but for mending hearts. To understand God's salvation plan, His terms, His conditions, His promise, not ours, 
to see Jesus Christ. So what obstacles has Satan placed in your heart that is keeping you from the promise of God? That's where we are this morning. Is it an unholy value system? Is it a pride that we have accomplished something? Is it claiming to live for Christ but not actually living for Christ? Is it a hard, unforgiving heart towards others? You may be here this morning and the Spirit of God has revealed you've got things in your life, obstacles that are keeping you from the full promise of God. And so the word of the Lord cries out to you, prepare the way for the Lord to respond. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not saved, so you're wrestling with obstacles in your own life. You're finding value in things of this world. But you're realizing that things of this world continue to let you down. They continue to give you this desire to want something new and something more. That's because the word of the Lord reveals you're not created for those things. You're created for a relationship with a God who loves you, is for you, not against you. The Bible lets us know this image of grace and this gift of grace is all because there's a holy God whom we just sang to you a few minutes ago is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise because He created all things perfectly. But all of us wrestle with sin. Those are our valleys. We all wrestle with rebellion. We all think that we know better than the Almighty God. And because we all rebel and we all sin, what we also try to do is we try to have our own prideful system that I can fix this. I can do this better. I will just be a good person. I will make good decisions. I will go to church. I will be more involved. I will do this, 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 and this. But the Bible reveals that you and I cannot remove the sin in our life. We can be as good as we want, but the Bible says there is no one good. There is no one righteous. No one seeks after God. So we have to come to this place that, you know what? I cannot fix me. I can't. But because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy, and because God already knows everything about my life, there's not a thing that is hidden from Him. He brings me to this moment and to this place, not to try to have it all figured out, not to come up with a new game plan, but to simply come before His feet and understand that He sent His Son to pay for my sin in full. You may be here this morning and that's exactly where you are. You've been trying to be the good person, trying to do the right thing, but the reality is you can't. You cannot save yourself. But God wants to save you and He has. He extends this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and the Bible says, when I believe in my heart, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God sent him to die for my sins and he did and he rose again. When I believe that in my heart and I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. That may be where you are this morning. We have time invitation. If that's you, I'm just asking you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I know I'm a sinner. I need this, this fixed. Maybe you're a child of God and notice this message is to the children of God. Because children of God, we can get distracted. We can begin to chase after other things. And maybe God has revealed there's a place in your heart that it's been an obstacle from you experiencing the full presence that He wants to bring into your life. And you just need to come and kneel before the Father and repent of those things. I don't know where you are, but now's the time to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Well, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you want to use us. 
to work alongside with you. And Lord, as we hear your word, don't let us receive the word of your grace in vain. Father, I thank you that you know all about us. There's not a thing we wrestle with, an obstacle we have, a sin we have, you are unaware of. Yet, God, you still love us. You're still faithful. There's nothing in this room, there's nothing any of your children are wrestling with that is new. So thank you for bringing us to this place, Lord, to call out into our wilderness, to call out into our, our souls, to prepare the way for you. Father, I pray for myself that right now you just help me to make you the king over all of my life, my marriage, my family, my kids. Be the king over this church. Your authority, your power, your glory be the only thing to see. Lord, I pray for those individuals this morning that you know by name, you know the hairs on their head, you know everything about their life. There's not a, a detail of their life that's not written in your book. But here this morning, they know that they are not saved. They are not a child of God. And they know that that can change right now. Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke what the devil is trying to do and holding them captive and holding them bound to that. Lord, I pray your spirit would move with such a courage and a power that they cannot stay where they are and they would accept you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for doing great and mighty work in us that we cannot do in ourselves. Thank you for this time, Lord. We come to a time of response to worship you in spirit and truth. Declare to you, we will not just be hearers of your word, but we will be doers of it. Forgive me if I failed in any way in presenting your word. If I've gotten in your way, Lord, just take that from our memory. I pray so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If I just stand, if I can.